Travel where and when you can. Even better if you can incorporate your love of travel into your day job. Best if you can share that love and knowledge with others. This week, educational travel on the podcast. Welcome to Data Doyen. I'm Dr. Pauline Hoffman, and I'm your podcast hostess. This podcast is for the data nerd and the data nervous. I take a look at what's real and what is not, what is true and what is false. Truth-telling through research and education. Curiosity required. Hello, data nerds and data nervous. Welcome back. I hope you are enjoying Travel Month on the podcast. Last week, we started our conversation with the most interesting person in the world, Deb Neighbor, an assistant professor of environmental studies at Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks. This week, we continue our conversation by discussing our mutual love of study abroad, We heard from Sarah Craver a few weeks ago about her experiences abroad and how she encourages students and others to travel as much as possible for a number of reasons. This week, Deb talks about her recent trips abroad, as well as new projects on the horizon. When we spoke, she had just finished a trip abroad to Iceland. I asked her, why Iceland? Was this her first trip there? I asked her about that, and she had this to say. Yeah, so my first trip um, was right, like two days after I graduated with my PhD. I went to Iceland to a conference and gave a talk, which was all part of the plan. I would find conferences in places that I wanted to travel to and, <laughs> and get the colleges to pay my way. <laughs> so, so, um, so that was my first trip to Iceland with about 150 international geographers. And I just loved the country, loved the people. So I went back again um, a couple years later uh, by myself. And and I just took a total of 49 undergraduates, five graduate students and four other faculty. And we broke them into two groups as part of a class. So they spent all spring semester studying the environment of Iceland. So it it has globally famous deforestation since the Vikings cut down most of the trees. It has horrible soil quality to the point that the United Nations teaches um, people from around the world about desertification. So they don't you don't think of a desert when you think of Iceland, but the soil so poor and the moisture um, just doesn't stay in the volcanic soil and the rock. Uh, so the soil is extremely poor. And then we study geothermal energy and agriculture. That's mainly a lot of it's done in geothermal heated greenhouses. So we study that all semester and then we go over for a week at a time and actually get to see these things. Deb isn't the first professor I've spoken with who decides on conferences based on where they're located. I mean, hell, I've done it myself. To be clear, though, everyone I know who does this enjoys the conference and legitimately wants to be at the conference to learn. We are, after all, nerds. But we also do take the time to explore outside of the conference hours. That's my caveat in case anyone in authority from any of our institutions is listening to this and is assuming they're funding vacations or something. Besides, isn't the point of travel to understand other cultures? And if, as in Deb's case, you return and then plan a trip to benefit your students, 
I would say that conference paid for itself and then some. There are also different approaches to study abroad. Deb mentions that she has the students take a class in the spring semester, so they are ready for the trip in the summer. I know others who have students participate in an online class or who have readings or other materials to review ahead of any trip. Others have the students sign up and sort of wing it. Not quite, and not, not 100%. You can never just totally wing it, although isn't that kind of what I did with Uganda when I talked about that last week? Now, I didn't get to study abroad as we've been talking about it, which is going abroad when I was an undergrad. That said, I did have a couple of experiences that were quite impactful, and that would qualify. I mentioned a few weeks ago that travel abroad takes many forms, including just going to the next town if the next town is different and offers something educational for you. Those of you who follow me on Instagram probably saw my reel about my trip to Beaufort, North Carolina to visit the Duke University Marine Laboratory. I spent a fabulous summer there studying marine invertebrate physiology and marine ecology. I mean, who doesn't? I got to meet some wonderful people and learn from some of the best. It was fun to return and see how much has changed 30 years later, more than 30 years. Ah. Also, we had a professor when I was an undergrad who would take students to Everglades National Park every other year over our winter break. You would take a class in the fall semester that would teach you about the geology, hydrology, and ecology of the park. Then you would travel in vans from south of Buffalo to outside Miami, one long trip, sleeping in the van, not the driver. The driver had to be alert, and that person would shift. We had several different drivers. Our professor was a herpetologist. He's since died, sadly. If you're going to go to the Everglades with anyone, a herpetologist is pretty cool. And for those of you who don't know, a herpetologist studies reptiles and amphibians, essentially. And if you don't know what that is, snakes, frogs, and the like. He had no problem wrangling any manner of critter. And I believe I've mentioned in a previous podcast that he had a little journal and he would keep notes of which students cited which animals, among other things. I was the eagle-eyed student, and you might say that I was a brown noser, a big giant nerd, and I will accept the big giant nerd label. But when your professor says you need to look down because if you're bitten by a snake, you may die, guess who doesn't want to die? And guess who's looking down? Data Doya, and she's paying attention. Sadly, this trip no longer happens at the university. It was incredibly educational and rewarding. I learned so much about South Florida, including how we as humans are encroaching on habitats. Now I read about the pythons that are not indigenous to South Florida being hunted, so they don't hunt everything else. They don't have natural predators. Now I'm going to stop because I could go on and on and on, and perhaps in a future podcast I'll talk about animals that shouldn't be where they are. But let me get back to my conversation with Deb. I asked her why she feels study abroad is so important. I wish everybody would do their walkabout time after high school or you know, before they settle into a job for life and just take a month and travel and go do the things that they probably won't get to do once they get tied to a job and a family yeah. and everything else. So. I do find it is more difficult to travel and explore when you have responsibilities, a job, a family, dogs, etc. In fact, millennials and Generation Z may agree. According to a study done yearly by Deloitte, 57% of each generation prioritizes seeing and traveling the world. Just 39% of millennials and 45% of Gen Z prioritizes having children and or starting a family. Now remember, millennials are those born between about 1985 and 1997, and Gen Z is born between about 1997 up to about 2012. Now, TravelPerk.com aggregated data from several studies to determine some key attributes of both of these groups, Millennials and Gen Z. And since we're talking about study abroad, even though anyone of any age can travel, 
those people who are students are generally speaking Generation Z or Millennials. What are their, some of their characteristics? Now, Gen Z travels on average 29 days a year. 70% of those uh, Gen Zers are planning or are thinking about splurging on a huge getaway in 2022. No surprise, I think everybody wants to get the hell out now, right, after being cooped up. Now, millennials, 68% of millennials are planning or thinking about that. 60% of my generation, Gen X, and only 51% of boomers are trying to plan or splurge on a trip in 2022. Now, 51% of Gen Z travelers are planning international trips, while 37% of them have plans for domestic vacations. 65% of Gen Z ranked travel and seeing the world as the most important way to spend their money. And experiences drive those decisions as more than 8 in 10 Gen Z and millennial travelers are seeking a unique experience for their next trip. Now, 81% of Gen Z cite budget as a factor when making their booking decisions compared to only 57% of baby boomers. 90% of Gen Z say their international travel decisions are influenced by social media. In fact, nearly 6 in 10 Gen Z travelers use their smartphones for travel inspiration and research. And the smartphone is the most important device for Gen Z when re researching, booking, or canceling trips. And again, this is from travelperk.com that aggregated the information, and I will be sure to share the link on the website. And among Gen Z, the top reasons for choosing a travel destination are value for the money, availability of cheap flights, and safety and security. Now, according to the Association of International Educators, nearly 60% of students who study abroad are doing so in Europe. That shouldn't be a surprise, followed by 13% who study in Latin America. So think about those numbers. 60% of people who are studying abroad are in Europe. The next highest number is 13% in Latin America. That's a pretty big gap. Now, to be fair, Europe does, encom does encompass many different countries, but, and I'm sad, only 3% are in my beloved Africa. Now, while 45% of students in colleges and universities are white, 70% of those who study abroad are. So it still does favor, study abroad still does favor those who are able to afford it, and that could be with either money and or time and or other considerations. So people studying abroad from the U.S. are primarily white students. Now those numbers may be deceiving. It seems like, I mean, 70% seems like a lot of people, but if we take a look at all students in post-secondary education, fewer than 1% are traveling abroad in, or traveled abroad in 2019 to 2020. Now, that was also COVID. Pre-COVID doesn't paint a much rosier picture. Just over 1% of those people in colleges and universities study abroad. So of that number, of that small percentage, that 1%, let's say, 70% are white, 60% of them are in Europe. Now, additionally, According to the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, and Australia are the most popular host countries for international students. In fact, half of all international students study in these countries, in these five countries. The countries with the most students studying abroad are China and India. According to UNESCO, there were about 713,000 Chinese students studying abroad. This is in 2013. I don't have more recent data. Several small countries, including Andorra, Bermuda, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Montserrat, and the Seychelles, and the Turks and Caicos, have more students studying abroad than are at home. 
Now, I asked Deb about study abroad at her specific college, Paul Smith's College, and she noted. So our student body is pretty local, something like 80% are from New York and Vermont. I found that maybe 15, 20% have never been outside the country, except some haven't even been to Canada and we're an hour away from the border. The first time I took students to Uganda, one of the students had never been on an airplane and that was his maiden voyage. Some of these students have not even been outside of New York State. So their horizons are very narrow. And to be able to take them to a place that is so different from where they've been and grown up and the people are different um, is definitely life-changing. And there's a big difference between taking students to India or Africa or taking them to Iceland with such a large group. It was much more tourism useful. <laughs> you know, we used a tour guide and a big bus and things like that, but but it was still life-changing for them. The, the biggest lesson, well, they have two big lessons. One they get is, I can't believe how friendly people are there. It doesn't matter what country we go to, they don't expect people to be friendly um, or have anything in common with them. The second thing is, because we, the way I do it now is we study the country for a whole semester. They have to pick a particular subject that has to do with their major and they have to write a research paper before they go. And then they have to do something on that subject on the trip and then write a journal essay about what was different when they actually got there and found out about the subject. So it could be like in Africa, my students had to come up with a lesson to either teach the kids or to teach a women's group. And the thing they learned there is that the women and the kids knew a lot more than they ever thought they knew. And often the women had to help them with their project because it just wasn't working. They had spent all semester designing how to build a rocket stove that would you know, help them burn less firewood. And when they got there, the women showed them how to get it going because they couldn't get the fire started. <laughs> so, um, and in Iceland, it was, you know, they just didn't realize that geothermal was used so extensively. Um, they didn't realize that people in Iceland had a very liberal political view and kept asking, what the heck is going on there in the United States? Um, and just all different kinds of things that they learned so that when I read these journals, I'm like, okay, my job here is done. I, you know, in one week, I taught them a life lesson. The students learn so much from us as educators, or so we hope, but our experiences tell us both that they absolutely do. I can't believe how friendly people are. I can't believe we have so much in common. Or heck, I thought I knew the answer, but I guess having boots on the ground, listening and including the people you're thinking you're helping goes a long way. I also learned something from Deb. Earlier, she mentioned that Iceland was used to study desertification. I had no idea. I mean, I knew the Vikings made their way to Iceland, but I had no idea the ecological destruction they reaped that is still felt today. 
It just goes to show that while we hope students learn from us and we take great pains to make sure they do, we may also learn something from the students. As part of our conversation, Deb mentioned that she's working with the local Mohawk tribe of the Iroquois Federation. I asked her how that came about. No, this this was pretty cool. Um, the reservation's only about uh, an hour from here, so not very far away. I uh, I was taking students to Uganda, and I had a class uh, where again you took a spring semester of learning about Uganda and all its environmental issues and social issues, and uh, I had a student from the Mohawk tribe who signed up for the class and went on the trip in 2018. And it was the only class I ever had her for, but she she was very patient. And when you have a lot of downtime on these trips, so um, waiting for the bus to come get you or just sitting for an airplane. And we would get into these conversations about how to pronounce her name correctly and some of the stereotypes that even I, who thought I was pretty good at this stuff, still had. And so she would very patiently explain a lot of things to me about Native American students and how they have a a very close tie to their families. So their family's always going to take priority over getting to class on time. If their grandmother needed them to take them grocery shopping, they just weren't going to go to school that day. So it explained a lot. And it also helped me to explain to her how we could work that out better or how she could talk to a professor about it. So it's about a year later after she graduated that I got a message from her and she said, um, hey, my, my mother is in special education Uh, with the Mohawk tribe, and they closed all five of the libraries at the Mohawk schools because they needed room for computers, which I always think is sad. (laughs) So she wants to build a mobile library on wheels that she can take to the community and take around to the schools and rotate it to the different schools. And I now live in a tiny house and I teach tiny house design and green construction and I take classes in building. And so she said, well, my mom's going after this grant and she needs to team with somebody who can actually build this thing. I said, I can do it, no problem. I'll sketch up some designs for you. I'll come up with a budget for the project. And so we applied for, for the grant, and that was in March 2020, and COVID hit, and the grant was put on hold. So it opened up again this year, and we applied, and we got the grant. So the idea was to get the youth of her community involved. I would teach them how to build a tiny house on wheels. Um, during the summer, and then my students would finish the project in the fall. Unfortunately, the grant was delayed, and now uh, we found out that it's going to take us three months to order a trailer uh, for the for the tiny house, which will become now not only like a, a mobile library, but also a Mohawk language learning center. 
so uh, hopefully we'll have the trailer next week, if not, hopefully uh, by the time our semester starts and my start, students will have to start it from scratch. Studying abroad doesn't have to be so broad in order for you to learn something and make an impact. And her habit of talking to people and hearing their stories and their problems, it's also important to be open to hearing cultural differences. You heard Deb say she thought she was pretty savvy about cultural differences, but there were things she didn't know within her own backyard. That is so incredibly important. Curiosity. But that mobile library is turning into more than just a library. It will be a language learning center. Using your talents and skills to help others is also key. What do you have to offer that might benefit someone else? And are you open enough to accept what they may have to offer you in return? Also, I told her I may have to steal her idea or reach out to her to help me to do something like that in our own community. I mean, the Adirondacks aren't that far from us. I asked Deb where she plans to go next with students, and she has been a number of places, but here's where she plans to go and why. My next trip with students is theoretically my last because I just turned 65 and I've decided that I would like to go on vacation by myself for once instead of with, you know, 20, 20 year olds tailing behind me. So I'm planning to go. I planned this trip in 2020 and I had to cancel. I'm planning to take just 10 students to British Columbia up along the West Coast. And my sister and I did this trip where I was speaking in Vancouver, again, a, a conference where I wanted to go um, about the educational value of tiny houses, teaching students how to build tiny houses. And then we went up the coast and it turns out there's like 70 tiny houses in the Airbnb market within a 20 mile stretch on the coast. My sister and I, each rented a different tiny house every night. So I got to see all these different tiny houses. And so my plan was to take 10 students and rotate them through like 25 tiny houses I had booked. Turns out Airbnb doesn't let you do that. Somehow I got away with booking multiple places on multiple nights, um, but we had to cancel due to COVID. So. I have to talk to Airbnb. There's a different way to do that. And I can do it as a corporation. I can book them. So we're going to book as many tiny houses as possible. And then I have an interview with a tiny house manufacturer and some zoning officers and some other people that make module homes uh, to talk about the industry and the need and why this particular area allows them when many other areas don't allow my next trip will theoretically be my last. Theoretically? I think we all say this, but you know what? Once travel's in your blood, it's in your blood. And once you've traveled with students, I don't know that you can stop, but perhaps. I do want to comment, though, on the idea of vacation. Both of us have said that people often tell us how nice it must be to go on vacation on a university's dime. And we both say, I don't know why you think this is a vacation. There is nothing about this that's a vacation other than I'm not in my backyard. And as Deb said, when you have 20, 20 20-year-olds trailing behind you, nope, not a vacation. But, you know, I had this risk management plan that had a line in it, like, don't wear sneakers on hot lava. Don't put your hand in the hot geyser, you know. It's like just, and I just had to meet with our insurance guy and he's like, that's the best risk management plan I've ever seen. You covered a 
And then one of the students, the first thing he did was walk over to the water by the geyser and put his hand in the water. It wasn't hot because it had flowed down the cold stone, but I'm screaming, why did they just tell you not to do? <laughs> also, she finds what she loves and what her passions are and figures out how to teach that and share that with others. That's kind of what we as educators do. Many of us excel at it. Keep your eyes peeled for upcoming Data Doyen-sponsored trips. You could travel with me. I mean, doesn't that sound like a party? Now, as our conversation was winding down, I asked Deb if she had any un- upcoming trips planned. Right now, Iceland's my favorite. I'm already planning two trips next year, one with just a couple of friends to go see the northern lights from a hot tub in the middle of nowhere. You can rent Airbnbs with hot tubs outside and uh, just sit out there and and watch the northern lights and then next summer i would like to rent a camper van and drive around the island by myself i my guide from this last trip and i became very good friends i'm trying to fly her to the adirondacks to talk about ecotourism and then i'd like to go up north and visit where she lives when i come up. So again, I've met somebody. Um, I've got contacts there now. So I also asked her if there was anything she hasn't done or any place she hasn't been that she wants to go. Her comments. That I want to do, no. Um, You know, even my bucket list for countries I want to go to is pretty short. And I tend to go back to places now rather than go to places I haven't been. But, you know, like I'd like to go to Greenland and compare it to Iceland because I love Iceland. And I'll hear about someplace on the radio and I'll think, yeah, okay, I could go there. I would like to go there. But I've become very much a homebody since moving back to the Adirondacks. I, you know, I, I have my tiny house. I have a million projects. I love working with my students. I get the dogs, a cat, and a tropical fish tank in the in the tiny house so so I'm I'm starting to try to pass down the idea of travel to some of the other younger professors as and get them going so we we had an international travel program when I came to Paul Smith in 2015 um, but I was put in charge of it in 20. Yes, 2019, um, and then COVID hit, and we we didn't go anywhere for two years. So, but it's it's thriving. We for such a small school with 700 students, I was figuring we took eight percent of the student body overseas in May, <laughs> and I said, boy, our planes better not crash or have a big tuition drop. <laughs> My dark humor. <laughs> I share Deb's dark humor. Of course, we don't ever wish for anything bad to happen, but we do have to plan for it, as she noted with her risk management plan. I've had parents ask me if I can guarantee their child's safety. Um, No, I can do the best I can. I can't guarantee a whole lot of anything. I also can't guarantee their safety here in the U.S. In fact, given what's happening here, I'd say your child might be safer pretty much anywhere else in the world. But that's enough of my political commentary. Let's talk about my arse instead, my arbitrary random stat. Now, Deb spent quite a bit of time talking about her current favorite place, Iceland. I dug up some fun facts about Iceland. According to NordicVisitor.com, 
Iceland is one of the world's oldest democracies. In fact, it was the first country in the world to democratically elect a woman head of state. The Icelandic language has over 100 words for wind. Nearly 40% of the population believes in elves and trolls. There is no standing army and no McDonald's. There are no snakes, bears, mosquitoes, or poisonous bugs. And it's also one of the safest countries in the world with one of the lowest rates of violent crime. Thank you to everyone for listening. An incredible and special thank you again to Deb Neighbor for sharing so much with us these last two weeks. Show music by Bryce Murphy, logo designed by Liam McGurl. For more information and to access the data and other information discussed on this week's episode, visit datadoyen.com. If you like this podcast, tell all of your nerdy friends and be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review. Podcasts drop on Mondays. Please also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Be sure to go to my website to sign up for my newsletter. Also, tell me your travel story. Which trip was most memorable for you? Why? Share your advice and your travel bucket list. Stay curious. Stay curious.